Section 2 of The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 8, May 1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 8, May 1897. Section 2 The Obsequies of Ole Miss Jug by Jean Ross Irvine. This sort of day always reminds me of Indians, said Mrs. Albright, taking a long look around over the hills. It was an afternoon in late August. A blue haze, the smoke of distant forest fires, lay upon the land, lending to the old familiar hills an air of mystery and remoteness, like that of veiled faces. Down in the valleys and upon the long hillsides, the blue faded softly into the gray of the sagebrush, and the gray into the vague green of the creek bottom. Mrs. Albright, the wife of the manager, and I, the governess of the big red ranch, were sitting on the porch, studying Italian art, rather sleepily, in spite of the excitement attendant on the pronunciation of some of the names. We had just looked up an unusually exciting one of six syllables, and were about to relapse into the former chaos of unpronounceable domes, bell towers, and palaces, when Mrs. Albright abruptly changed the subject by the above remark. I don't know why, she continued. Perhaps it's because it's such a very lazy day. Ten minutes later, we discovered more convincing reasons for the tenor of her thoughts in the weekly paper, brought by a mounted messenger from the post office over fifty miles away. The population of the Big Red comprised three women, four men, and five children. The cowboys, of whom there were about fifty, being absent upon the roundup, while Mr. Albright was away on a trip to New York. We were sixty-five miles from the railroad and from the nearest town, ten miles from any other ranch, and quite fifty from anyone whom we could call a neighbor. And now, as though aware of our unprotected position, the Indians had taken occasion to go on the war path. Willfully and maliciously, exclaimed Mrs. Albright, as she sat reading blood-chilling accounts of massacres that had taken place or were about to take place. Accounts which were further supplemented by the messenger's report of the burning that very morning of a ranch only forty miles away. Certainly, thought I, as the bearer of ill tidings rode away, there are several reasons why one's thoughts might wander towards Indians. But I said nothing, and we were both silent for a long time, Mrs. Albright attending, in the spirit, at innumerable massacres and house burnings. At last she arose and went into the house, overcome by the thought of the five young Albrights being led in chains by the conquering sitting bull. I'm sure, she exclaimed, coming back to the door, if there were any real danger, our friends in town would send for us. Then, a little huskily, I don't know what to do, she concluded, with a telltale catch of her breath. At the other end of the porch sat the five little Albrights, in a circle, holding a solemn consultation. There was Tony, the eldest, the twelve-year-old, the twins, aged ten, Billy, seven years old, and Ethelbert Van Twiller Albright, aged five. They were all looking very sober, and each child was decorated with a generous piece of black silk, torn off the bottom of an old skirt. In the center of the circle stood an empty box, over which were draped the remains of the skirt, and which probably represented to Tony's cultivated mind a beer. The twins shared between them a very crumpled handkerchief, with which they occasionally rubbed their eyes. "'What is the matter, children?' I exclaimed, as I took in the details of the scene. Tony was silent until he had marshaled his features into a state of due solemnity. Then, in a voice carefully modulated to fit the occasion, he replied, "'At the break of day, Miss Jug departed this life.' 
She has gone over the big divide, added the twins, who never let pass an opportunity of using a cowboy phrase. Old Miss Jug, as the children called her, was a portly dog, of great age and immovable dignity. In the opinions of the five young Albrights, she was as old as the oldest tree. Certainly she was as old as the oldest of the mourners. Her reign over the animal kingdom of the ranch had been long and prosperous. For years she had presided, with justice and equity, over the affairs of cats infesting the woodpile, repelled from her domains the invasions of goats, cows, and horses, and relentlessly inflicted punishment upon the hens who sought to destroy the flower beds. And now, as Tony would have said, in the fullness of time, she had gone whence no dog returneth. She was a mighty fine dog, said one of the twins sorrowfully. You bet she sure was, exclaimed the other, whereupon they both applied the handkerchief, emerging a moment later with very red eyes, but quite composed. And, said Tony, visibly brightening, we're going to give her the very finest funeral we ever had. At this, the four other young Albrights also brightened, and a few moments later the five marched around into the backyard, where the body lay in state, and there I could hear them cheerfully discussing the arrangements for the funeral of the deceased Miss Jug. Had Tony lived some hundred years ago, he would have become Pope, or certainly a Cardinal. So great was his love of ritual. The burial of a hen under his direction became a most imposing ceremony. Theatricals were his passion. Robed in a scarlet tablecloth and armed with a bread knife, he would recite Hamlet's soliloquy in such a melancholy voice and with such expressive motions of his weapon that the twins would be thrown into quite an ecstasy of horror while the younger part of the audience cowered in terror under the bedclothes, the exhibitions taking place generally at bedtime, being more impressive by candlelight. About five o'clock I heard the funeral pass my window. The choir will now sing an anthem, said Tony. And as they marched away, I could hear five young voices rising and falling in a tune which, though it was an anthem, sounded suspiciously like Polly Wally Doodle. Late that evening Mrs. Albright and I sat alone on the cool piazza, rocking, thinking, waiting. As long as daylight had lasted, and the little Albrights had borne us company, we had kept up a pretense of cheerful conversation. But now that the small folks were tucked away in bed, and the men had foregathered in the barn, we relapsed into a silence whose gloom was accented by the deep minor chords of night, the croaking of frogs, the distant lowing of thirsty cattle waiting for the rains, and now and then the hungry howls of the coyotes holding revel further down the creek. By this time it was quite dark. Even the long, narrow sea of smoky green that had gleamed so long over the western hills had faded. About the top of a nearer peak, that of a rocky hill, a quarter of a mile or so to the east of us, which Tony had christened Golgotha, shone a faint radiance, the first rays of the rising moon. Suddenly, with a faint scream, my companion gripped my arm. Look, she whispered, the Indians. Even as she spoke, from the crown of Golgotha there shot up a tongue of flame, waving and twisting far into the distance. Close upon the sight there followed a long, echoing war-whoop. Then there was wafted to our ears a chorus of muffled shrieks and yells, accompanied by what seemed a wild beating of drums. "'Quick, Nell!' cried Mrs. Albright hoarsely. "'Run to the barn for the men. I'll wake the children and bring them down.' It seemed a thousand years before I reached the house again, followed by the men, hastily armed and equipped for a possible siege. By this time the fire on the hill was blazing fiercely, and against its ruddy background we could see grotesquely outlined dark blanketed figures leaping wildly in some barbaric dance. Every moment the flames rose higher, the figures leaped more wildly, 
and the yelling and drum beating sounded more distinctly, mingled from time to time with faraway peals of heart-stilling laughter. To add to the horror of it all, there was now wafted to us from time to time, upon the night air, cool and heavy with the scent of wild flowers, a sickening odor, the odor of burning flesh. At the moment of this dreadful discovery, Mrs. Albright, pale and sobbing, rushed down the stairs and out on the piazza. The children, they're not in their rooms, she cried. I've looked for them everywhere. Oh, Nora, to the cook who stood in the doorway, her florid face actually paling with terror. Have you seen my children? Nora pointed a quaking finger to the fire on the hill. There, I saw them steal away that way an hour ago, she gasped. They was, but before she could finish, Mrs. Albright was out of the door and rushing toward Golgotha, her white shawl gleaming in the darkness. Straight away, in spite of those who would have restrained me, I plunged after her, following down the path, across the creek, and up the steep ascent in the wake of that fluttering white signal. We could not see the fire now, but the smoke streamed blood-red over our heads, and we could hear the cries of the victim and smell the burning flesh. As we neared the top of the hill, the hideous shrieks suddenly ceased. The drum was silenced. All was quiet, save for the fierce crackling of the flame. They've seen us, I thought, and gripping Mrs. Albright's arm from behind, stood for a moment motionless and peered ahead. Just over the black rocks of the hilltop gleamed the full moon like a great bloody sun. Suddenly there appeared upon a rock right above us, full against the broad copper orb of the moon, a dusky savage. For an instant he stood motionless, a great knife gleaming in his uplifted hand, and his blanket blowing against his bare legs. Then down to us poor women trembling below floated these words, To be or not to be, that is the question. It was Tony's voice. In a flash, the truth burst upon us. We had been witnessing one of Tony's dramas. What a sight met our gaze as we rushed up onto the top of the hill. There, in the midst of the fire, lay all that was mortal of Miss Jug, falling fast into ashes. Seated upon the rocks were the four little Albrights, each robed in a white sheet and armed with a great tin pan. And upon the highest rock stood Tony, garbed in the red tablecloth and carrying the bread knife. Oh, children, cried their mother, sinking down upon the rocks. Why didn't you tell us what you're going to do? You frightened us nearly to death. Dignity and tin pans were thrown to the winds, while the four Albrights made a frantic attempt to comfort their mother. We's just been a burnin' old Miss Jug, exclaimed the twins. It's a cremation, corrected Tony with dignity. These, pointing to the sheeted Albrights, are the heavenly choir. I'm the high priest of the moon, and, pausing dramatically, he drew the tablecloth closer about him, and indicating the moon, the fire, the heavenly choir, and himself with one sweep of the bread knife, the high priest concluded in a deep, solemn voice, These is the obsequies of old Miss Jug. Let her R.I.P. End of section 2